there, and welcome to Zero Half Hour, brought to you by Zero Hour Health and Zedic, a podcast where we talk with leaders from across the food service industry and beyond about the pressing issues of the day in 30 minutes or less. Our goal is to share ideas from diverse perspectives on a range of topics that matter to every business in the current and post-COVID eras. I'm Rosalind Stone, CEO of Zero Hour Health. Our guest today is an old friend, Dr. LJ Tan. LJ will tell you himself about his current role with Immunize.org. Prior to joining Immunize, LJ was the Director of Medicine for the American Medical Association for more than 15 years. He attended Duke undergrad, NYU for his master's, and got his PhD from Northwestern University. Today we're talking polio, monkeypox, COVID, and more, and how you know what vaccines you got as a kid. Welcome, LJ. Hey, LJ, great to talk to you. How have you been? I'm good, Rosalind. Thanks again for this opportunity to, to chat about immunization, all issues. It's, uh, it's always fun. It is. LJ and I go way back. Um, we uh, first met at the, one of the very first national flu summits, and I'm almost embarrassed to say how long ago that was, when there were Don't a small group what. of us around the, around the table. Um, and, and in the more recent uh, national flu summits, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds um, that don't fit around tables and, and um, tremendous media coverage surrounding it as well. Um, LJ, tell me about your, your current role at Immunize. Yeah, I am the Chief Policy and Partnerships Officer at Immunize.org. Immunize.org used to be the Immunization Action Coalition. We're a group that, spes- that spends a lot of time working with the frontline immunizers. So if you are giving vaccines, uh, you want to come take a look at us because we do a lot of uh, education, a lot of support materials to help uh, help you give vaccines to the people who are recommended to receive vaccines. Um, we also do a lot of uh, policy work, and a lot of the policy work is reflected in our uh, support and leadership of the National Adult and Influenza Immunization Summit, uh, which does a lot of the implementation of policies. We try to tackle um, the support of the frontline immunizers at multiple levels, first in terms of the things they need to do to get vaccines into people's arms or noses, as the case may be, uh, and then we also do the background work, this policy, so that these immunizers are supported in terms of payment and so on and so forth. So what prompted me to reach out to you this week was I was driving down the road and I heard you on National Public Radio answering a question that was the question that we had been getting from clients and also, honestly, from friends and family for days um, since the news story broke about the New York polio case. And the question that you were answering was something along the lines of, at my age, how do I find out what childhood vaccines I had? How do I get documentation of them? Does it matter? Yeah, that's a really, really tough one, right? I mean, the challenge here is, you know, with our kids, we know, we, we, most of our kids we know because of the fact that, uh, you know, we've had uh, immunization information systems or what we also used to call immunization registries uh, were developed with the kids in mind, especially when the Vaccines for Children's program launched back in uh, the early 90s, right? So as part of launching that program, a lot of, you know, a lot of states started implementing these information systems for our kids so that we could track the, the vaccinations they were receiving. Uh, and so if you were a child and now obviously a child from the 90s is now an adult, uh, your records are probably in the state's immunization information system. Again, it may not be fully complete, but chances are it's, it's, it's there or it's been caught up right through the course of your growing up. Um, so the first place I would check, obviously, is your state public health department and check, check to see, uh, check to try to check your uh, immunization information system. Another place to obviously check is your primary care provider because primary care providers are also going to have access to that information system and they're going to be able to find out whether or not you have had what vaccines. 
Now, again, that's if you're a younger adult because that's, you know, you kind of were born into the system and you continue to age through the system. We didn't do a good job of putting adults into that system until right around now. COVID really juiced us up and realized, oh my gosh, you know, adults are getting vaccines too and we need to be able to follow them as well, right? So, so unfortunately, while we realized that a few, you know, maybe about a decade ago when we really started trying to implement adult immunizations, um, we, we, we were late to the game with that, with adults. And as a result, a lot of adults, um, you know, have not had their records uh, put into the system. So if you're an older adult and you were not born into the system back in the, in the early 90s, um, chances are you don't have complete immunization records in, your, in, in, the, uh, in the state uh, registries. Sure. You know, we have so much going on, and, and I'm going to pivot to monkeypox for a mm-hmm. second. I know that I had a smallpox vaccine because I know where the small scar is. You know, I recall my mother having a, you know, a very large scar on her, on her arm. I have a small scar on my leg. Um, at what age did we, when did we stop giving smallpox vaccine? Did we stop giving smallpox vaccine? Does it matter when it comes to monkeypox if you had a smallpox vaccine as a kid? Well, that's a great question. So I can't recall specifically what year, but it was in the early 70s. Smallpox was declared eradicated, I think, in 1976. I, you know what? I, you know, I, you're going to have to check my numbers because I'm just kind of going back with historical memory here. So, so I, you know, I think it was 1972, maybe, that the United States stopped, uh, universal smallpox recommendations. So, um, so chances are if you're born after that year, you're not going to have had a smallpox vaccine. Right. If I had a smallpox vaccine, which I did before 1972, does it still offer me any protection? Great question. So there's a there's a there's a lot of discussion about that because we do know there is some long lasting immunity associated with the vaccination, especially if you were boosted. So in some in some countries, they were giving uh, a vaccination at one year and four years. So they received two doses of the vaccine. In the United States, it was just one dose. Um, but uh, but so we do know that that's possible. But the general feeling is that no. Uh, the duration of immunity is not going to last from a, a, a smallpox vaccine that was given to you 30 years, 40 years ago, and that if you, if you are in that risk group that's recommended for, for vaccination to protect mm-hmm. you against monkeypox, you cannot rely on that. You, go, you should go ahead and get vaccinated. Right. So a lot of those people that are calling us, you know, clients, friends, and families and asking how they find out whether or not they had polio or smallpox vaccine, it almost doesn't matter, particularly with it really doesn't smallpox. Matter. Yeah. No. Yeah. The smallpox does not matter. The polio vaccine, you know, it does matter because if they had three doses as a child, you know, right. if they're protected against polio, chances are they're not going to suffer some of the nastiest, you know, as we know with this outbreak that, we, that, that brought all this to attention, it's, a, it's an unvaccinated people, right? So, so you know, if they're vaccinated, they know they're, they're more, like, more likely than not they're going to be protected against, you know, paralysis, right? Um, and what we really want to do is then focus on the unvaccinated or the undervaccinated and get them, vac- get them caught up. Sure. Um, you know, we're just seeing, you know, we, we have vaccine hesitation. We have people that are behind in vaccines because of COVID. You know, it's just we're in a we're in an interesting or a really challenging crossroads here that, um, you know, could go in could go in some very bad directions. Um, yes. There are several news stories about the polio detection in wastewater from from several months ago. Um, talk to me about that. Why are we just learning about it? Because there was one person who had paralysis or. Um, because people aren't being tested or so so we also do know so the, the so, so I think we need to go back a little bit and try to understand exactly where where where, where we're going with this right so so what we're recognizing is that you know um, the there 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 used to be two different types of polio vaccine there used to be a, a, the the oral polio vaccine the sugar cube 
You know, remember that? Um, I remember and, what it tastes then, like. That was then replaced. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then re that was replaced. Even it gave great immunity. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, there was the side effect of what we call VAP or vaccine associated pyrolytic polio. You know, one in, uh, I can't, I'm not going to put the numbers again, but one in several million doses given, um, would, re would, would end up actually getting polio. And so as we began to reduce the risk of polio, the, the benefit, risk benefit analysis changed. And so the United States moved away from the, the oral, which was a live vaccine to the uh, injectable, which is a, which is an inactivated vaccine. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, um, or fortunately is the case, maybe, it, it, you know, I don't, I'm trying not to judge this process, obviously, right? Um, you know, it, as the vac polio vaccine was being used, you know, around the world because it was very effective, um, what it also ended up doing was it, it ended up actually some of that virus actually ended up getting into, um, into these, into the wastewater, into the circulation, because people who received the Oreo polio vaccine began also shed the, uh, oral, uh, uh, polio vaccine virus. And that ends up in the wastewater. And, and that's where you can have transmission. And that's where some of that risk is, is, is seen. So that's why the wastewater testing is important because what we know is that the strain that was detected in the, in the outbreak right now is, of course, is indeed a, 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 a strain that was associated with the vaccine virus. And so we're testing the water to see how far it has spread. And, and, and what it is is that we don't typically test the waters in the United States, the wastewater in the United States, because it's not one of those things. We don't, we, we, we eradicated polio in the U.S. So there was no need to test the wastewater. We, we didn't have polio. But then when this case popped up, um, it became clear that we needed to go back and look and see what was in the water. And I think, as you know, you know, as in New York, for example, two counties and the city, we've, dis we've already dis detected it. Um, and I think, um, and I think what it tells us is that there's transmission going on because that one individual is not the one that's responsible for that, the two counties and, and New York City, right? So, so I think, you know, what we're looking at is there's, there's transmission. Um, and obviously, if you have good immunization coverage, right? Um, that transmission is probably not going to be serious because people aren't going to get sick. They're not going to catch, they're not going, they're going to get rid of the polio and then they're not going to be further vessels for transmission. However, the unvaccinated, well, that's a different story, which is why the focus is on trying to get those unvaccinated people protected so that they don't not only catch, so they don't not only catch polio, but they don't also end up being further vessels for transmission of the virus, right? So, so that's kind of where we are. And testing wastewater is extremely, extremely resource intensive. Um, but, but it is one of the ways in which you can look for geographical spread. Why is it so resource intensive? <laughs> uh, you know, it's that, you know, it, I, I laugh because, um, because it seems obvious to me, but you're right. You know, you don't, if you're not a re, if you're not a wastewater sampler, you don't you don't really see. So you got to test the wastewater, then you got to pull out the sample, then you got to do all you got to do the genetic testing to identify the virus. Uh, you got to make sure that the contamination obviously does not impact your, your measuring, uh, because obviously you're pulling wastewater, right? So there's a lot of other stuff in there as well. So it's a it's it's it requires people power and it requires laboratory power and it requires uh, a, a strong and competent laboratory. So I think it's um, I think that's why it's resource intensive. Got it. Makes sense. Um, how big of a problem is this? How how big of a problem are we looking at with polio? If, if you had a we crystal can, ball. If I, yeah. So using my crystal ball, if we get our people vaccinated, the people who are unvaccinated and people who are undervaccinated, and there are more unvaccinated people in the U.S. against polio than 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 I think you think. Uh, you know, the, the numbers. Uh, ranging from, you know, 20 to 40 percent, right? So, um, you know, I think uh, if we can get the unvaccinated 
and undervaccinated people caught up and vaccinated, I think we're fine. I think we'll stop transmission. Okay. Um, but if we don't, polio is, I think to quote Walt Orenstein, I think Walt was the one who said this, you know, he said, uh, polio is really, really good at finding the unvaccinated people. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we've sort of learned that about COVID too, which lets us move on to our most and least and favorite you know next what? subject. Which COVID's helped us, Rosalind, yeah. because we've been sampling wastewater for COVID. So because of that, we actually have some infrastructure for wastewater sampling, which we're now using for polio. So I think that's that's so some another benefit from COVID. I guess if you're looking for benefits. <laughs> well, in in our world, we you know we've learned so much through through this pandemic, you know, about viruses and about vaccination and about human nature and and I mean the, the lessons just go on and on unfortunately um, but moving on for a, a different COVID subject um, when do you think the new boosters will be available I'm hearing anything from mid-September to later and that mid-September may be too optimistic I'm anticipating and as I think if you look at the Federal Register and maybe it's on now on the CDC website the CDC is having a uh, ACIP meeting September 1st and 2nd of next week I anticipate that on that agenda will not only be polio and monkeypox, but also probably the COVID-19 uh, bivalent boosters that you have heard so much about. So if I'm correct, and this is all speculation, okay? So, you know, don't, don't hold, don't come back to me and say, no, that's not what they did. Uh, this is all speculation. Um, I, if I, if my speculation is correct, I anticipate that uh, they will consider a vote on the use of the bivalent vaccine at that time. And if that's the case, uh, probably vaccine supply will begin to flow right after Labor Day weekend. Wow, uh, that's quick. Now, yeah, but that being said, we have to be aware that uh, supply may not match demand. Um, and, and, that's, and that's one of the things I think, you know, people will be looking at to see, to make sure that uh, the vaccine um, they, the, the, for example, the ACIP may, may decide initially to say to use the, the, the bivalent booster only for the highly vulnerable, right? The people over 65 and, you know, who, who need the booster and so on and so forth. Um, because they're trying to reduce hospitalization and severe illness in those risky populations because there may not be enough vaccine to start off with. So, so just be aware of that. Just because the recommendation is given, it does not necessarily mean that there will be vaccine available to everybody. Again, right. my and that was really that was really my very next question, which was, will it be available to everyone, or will there be initial restrictions or recommendations? You know, my hope, because there's been such poor uptake of boosters recently, you know, I certainly hope that um, demand outstrips supply. Um, but you know, there's a lot of vaccine out there right now. Uh, yep, the the yeah, and this is the other thing. There's a lot of vaccine out there right now, but when the bivalent comes all that vaccine is going to lose a bunch of its popularity, right? Or, we, or there's going to be fear of that. And so, right. so you know, again, total speculation. I think part of the journey will be also that these, these bivalent boosters are going to be used as boosters. You know, and then we, some people will say, well, why aren't we using them as primary series? Right? So all, all very legitimate questions, but it's, this is the policymaking. The art of policymaking is balancing supply and demand, uh, making sure that we can get people protected because we know the primary series using the original vaccines protect you against serious illness, protect you against hospitalization, protect you against death. The data is very, very clear about that. It's just not so good anymore protecting you against infection. But as been said clearly over the last month now, that's not the goal anymore, right? The goal is no longer to protect against infection. It's to protect you from dying is to protect you from getting severe illness and being hospitalized. So, so I think that that's the balance. If that's the goal, 
our vaccines work. The older vaccines work at doing that. But what we want now to do is to create a better vaccine so that some of the higher risk people, right, who if they did get infected, may still end up severely ill, get them protected first, and then trickle the vaccine down, the, the new bivalent booster, down to the, to the people who are less likely to have negative consequences from COVID. So I think that's my rationale. Again, it's all predicting what the ACIP is going to think, but, um, but that's just me thinking it through a little bit. Sure. And I've thought about so many of those, those same issues. And, um, you know, I, I worry that if we don't say everyone should get boosted, then we get into that, that messaging issue and the vaccine, you know, we leave time for vaccine hesitancy and, you know, people get sick again. So they say, why should I get vaccinated? Because I already, you know, I already got sick or I'm going to get sick anyway. So, you know, my, my, my hope is that it's a, uh, that there are no recommendations, um, that re recommendation restrictions, that it's available for everyone who would like to receive it. But that's um, that may be um, a pipe. It may be, it, and you might, it may not be. I, you know, I, you know, again, we're speculating here. We're having we're, we're having a, a conversation on a podcast, and I think your point, Rosalind, is absolutely right. That's the other side of the question: is that exactly that? That's point. That's good. I mean, that's a good point. You know, vaccine hesitancy. People are not getting vaccinated. Make it available to everybody so that so that we can just get everyone vaccinated with the booster. That's a, the bivalent booster. So you, you're right. I mean, you know, we just don't know. Right. We just don't know what that what that demand is going to be. Right. Um, as I said, I think we if we can clean up our messaging and say everybody needs to get boosted, we may you know, we may, in fact, you know, take away some of those some of those issues. So another question that we get is if someone had two two initial doses, and then they got one or two boosters, and then somewhere along the way, or recently, they had COVID. Do they still need a booster? And how yes, soon after, I, and absolutely. How soon after they were sick? Yeah, so absolutely. I think uh, I think the data is very clear that uh, that 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 getting vaccinated even after you've had COVID is is is, is will, will provide protection against the illness that you want. Um, but I think I think if you got sick and you've been vaccinated, I think you're one of those like you know really good people who are going to have a much more vigorous response. So you're better protected. So, so that, that's, that's just a caveat. But the, the general feeling is you, you want to go ahead and wait at least three months after infection to get your next vaccine. Um, it, it varies depending on who you talk to. So that, that I'll leave it at that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I have heard of some healthcare systems essentially waiting 14 days and then, and then giving the vaccine. Right. We've heard both. And we've had we've yeah. had um, clients and employees and patients and, you know, and even people here in our, our own office get mixed information on that. So two and a half years ago, or almost two and a half years ago, you were one of our very first webinar guests. And you were the first person who used the term twindemic, referring mm -hmm. to flu and COVID circulating simultaneously. You know, we got lucky then. Or, you know, we learned that masks and hand washing and staying home when you're sick worked. Yes. Um, but now we're hearing a lot about the risk of a twindemic, a twindemic again, based on Aussie activity. Can you discuss that? Yeah, absolutely. So Australia has been one of the big data sources for us because they have a really good surveillance system and they also have good, very good uh, data, real-time data on their coverage rates for the vaccination. And and uh, and this year we know their we know they their coverage rate was low to start, was very low to start. They had an early and very severe start to the flu season. So um, lots of hospitalization, lots of cases, lots of infection rates. Um, and, um, and remarkably, and again, this is 
there's there's no causality that I'm trying to imply here. What they what the Australian government did was as soon as they saw that was happening, they recognized that they were getting very low vaccine coverage rates. They opened up vaccine free for all. Essentially, they said all comers we're going to give you free vaccine, uh, no questions asked. So as uh, and um, and what they saw was an increase in the immunization coverage rates um, in Australia. And what was interesting was uh, as that immunization coverage rate went up. Um, they also began to see a decline in hospitalization rates. Now, whether that is causally associated, I can't tell you. There's so many confounders, right? I mean, so many confounders. But I believe that's data that's being teased out by the, by the Australians right now as to whether that is real. Uh, because wouldn't that be cool if it was real that they saw a, high, a, a severe flu season, they saw low vaccine coverage, they implemented an intervention to increase vaccine coverage. Vaccine coverage went up and hospitalizations went down. Wouldn't that be a great story? But it they're sure still looking be. at it. They're still looking at it. So we'll, we'll see. So this is all me just, you know, hoping and we'll see what the data really shows. But but all that being said, they had a severe flu season. Um, and and as we always say, you can never use the south. You should not use the southern flu season to predict the northern flu season. But there's some additional parameters at play uh, that that are that are typically not in play. One is the sudden and dramatic reduction in use of what we call non-pharmaceutical interventions, right? The masking that you talked about, uh, the social distancing that we talked about. Australia had the same thing. They dropped all of that. So that's a that's a that's a similarity. That's a commonality that we share with them, right? So we have that. Two seasons of l virtually no flu circulating, right? So that's another commonality. Because why is that important? No environmental boosting. So I've not seen my body, my immune system, other than through my flu vaccine, has not really been seeing flu flu. So mm -hmm. there's been you no. Know, so when I get vaccinated in October and then I walk around and people kind of cough flu on me because I'm vaccinated, I don't get sick, but I also get environmentally boosted, right? My immune right. response didn't get that for two and a half years. So what my argument is that our immunity for, against influenza is is lower than it typically is. So. Putting those two together and a couple of other things we can also discuss, but I don't want to get into too much detail, but putting those two things just by itself together, um, I'm worried that we're going to have a, a, a pretty dramatic flu season this, this fall. And, and see another surge of COVID. Potentially, yes. Uh, now, I think there's, there's a reason why everyone's talking about COVID vaccination, you know, with the bivalent, you know, as a booster, because I think what they're, what they're predicting is that if we can get people especially the most vulnerable, protected against uh, BA5, then we have one less thing to worry about for those vulnerable people. We can actually then focus on flu as well, right? So I think, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's a reason to try to get these people protected against both COVID and flu because they're high risk, you know, and we want to make sure they don't, they don't suffer the consequences of either catching one or the other or heaven forbid both. Right. You know, and just a, a basic reminder, um, you know, to the to the country, you know, the the weekly COVID deaths add up to three times a bad flu season in the United States. Yeah. So you don't want to forget COVID that isn't, COVID isn't over. Um, you know, and, and we've talked about flu numbers for years and what what's a good flu season, what's a bad flu season in the U.S. You know, and we're we're at at triple a bad a bad flu season now with the COVID deaths down to the level that they are. And Rosalind, if I may also just interfere with, uh, not interfere, but to interrupt on that and say, um, those deaths that you talked about in COVID, uh, the, the majority of them are in, are, are in unvaccinated people. Yes. Majority, a, a huge majority. Yeah. Um, 
two, two last questions for you. Um, there seems to be some, some data over the last few days that shows that maybe we're getting a handle on monkeypox. You know, again, we looked at, at UK, we, you know, we looked at European numbers and, and some of the other hotspots, and they seem to have leveled off. We, we've leveled off in a couple of major cities or are starting to level off. Do you, do you agree? I, I think so. I think, uh, again, this is the beauty of awareness, right? That, you know, um, you know one thing I've learned about, uh, about any population at risk, when you tell that population at risk, you're at risk, and you need to do behavioral modification to reduce your risk, most, most people follow through. <laughs> um, and, you know, and there's been some very dramatic, uh, not dramatic, excuse my language, that's not true. There've been, there've been reports, uh, in personalized reports from people who've had monkeypox as to the severity of the illness. And so I think that coupled with the fact that people want to not get sick has, has, has resulted in some of those interventions, some of the uh, protection, protective behaviors in being, being implemented. And that's been helpful. Then, of course, vaccination following up upon that. Um, I personally spoke with a monkey, uh, an employee who had monkeypox um, in the last several weeks, um, a few days ago, and he described to me a level of pain that, w that he described as 20 times worse than anything he experienced in his life. Um, and we keep on hearing this description of feeling like broken glass. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think that as that, you know, as that gets communicated, hey, this is not, you know, a few COVID-like symptoms and then a little rash and it goes away. You know, we're now seeing, you know, issues with scarring. We're seeing issues, you know, pain management um, that, are, that, that are really, really quite severe. Yes. So one final question. What keeps you up at night? <sighs> we already talked a little bit about it. I, I really worry about the politicization of public health and in particular also the politicization of vaccines. Um, you know, vaccines is a life-saving public health tool. A person's decision whether or not to get vaccinated should be based on science, not on my political affiliation, not on who gave the advice to get vaccinated, unless it's a physician, <laughs> but, but it should be based on science and medical care. Um, and unfortunately, we have seen the politicization of that process. And I think, uh, I, I would hate to have a person not get vaccinated because they heard from a someone who was politically aligned with them advocating against vaccination. And that keeps me I up agree. at night because that vaccine hesitancy will will really hurt all of us. I agree. Well, LJ, thank you as always. You just you know bring us bring us such a great perspective and such good information. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Rosin, for the opportunity and uh, say hi hi to all of all your listeners out there. Thanks very much. That's our show for today. Thanks again for taking the time to join us. Stay tuned for our next episode in your inboxes and on your podcast app of choice soon. As always, if you have any topics or questions you'd like us to cover or have a guest we should chat with, don't hesitate to reach out to us at support at zerohourhealth.com. To learn more about us and subscribe to our twice-weekly executive summary, check out zerohourhealth.com. Thanks again. Thank you.